This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Wednesday, February 15th. School is supposed to be filled with rites of passage, but not this one. We start here. Students at Michigan State University react in horror to a shooting spree. He came in our class and let off three to four rounds. And this comes right as several other communities are coming to grips with their own tragedies. Nikki Haley makes it official. She's running against her old boss. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. But it's not just the presidential race that's about to get messy. And if it's safe to return to this part of Ohio, why are there thousands of dead fish popping up in the rivers? What needs to happen is some type of forensic investigation to figure out what these animals died of. We'll ask an expert what it will take to get back on track. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. Yesterday, of course, was Valentine's Day, which is a day of romance and celebration for so many. But in a place like Parkland, Florida, it carries a sense of heaviness. This may be the five-year anniversary, but it's no different than yesterday, and it's no different than tomorrow. Their kid is never coming home. Their kid is forever 14. This was going to mark five years since 17 people were murdered in a mass shooting on a high school campus. Another reminder of how at-risk students have been made to feel. Well, before we even got to Valentine's Day, a college campus had come under fire. We're getting reports of multiple victims for an active shooter. Around 8 p.m. on Monday night, some students at Michigan State were still in class. At 8.15, a man with a gun started shooting in a hallway. Then... He walked into a classroom. He came in our class and let off three to four rounds. Two of my classmates uh, started breaking open the window. And then one of the people, just the door, people just started running to one side, so we all just ran out. And then when we ran out, there were cops there, and they told us to go lay in a field. Two students were killed in that building, but it still wasn't over. The gunman apparently walked over to the student union where he killed another victim. With the rest of the campus huddled in fear, we eventually learned that three people were dead and five others wounded before police found the suspected gunman. He killed himself before they could place him under arrest. And so as many Americans began their Valentine's Day, another American city had become a piece of this growing, tragic mosaic of American violence. Even among the survivors was a student who first heard the sound of gunshots when she was in elementary school. She went to Sandy Hook. I don't think you ever get over something so traumatic or so tragic. I think things like this, people feel, and it is never really goes away. She's now survived her second school shooting in barely 10 years. Let's start the day with ABC senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky. And Aaron, first off, what did we learn yesterday as these pieces kind of started fitting together at Michigan State? Most importantly, Brad, we learned the identities of the victims. They were all Michigan State students, including Ariel Anderson, a junior, Brian Frazier, a sophomore, and Alexandria Verner, also a junior. 
They were the ones who were shot and killed. There were five other Michigan State students who were shot and wounded and are recovering in the hospital. Our Spartan hearts hang heavy. This is a day of shock and heartbreak here across our campus and our region. And we also learned the identity of the gunman, 43 years old, Anthony McRae, who has no affiliation whatsoever with the school. And so the authorities are trying to figure out why he chose the Michigan State campus to carry out this shooting based on whatever grievances he seems to have possessed. We have absolutely uh, no idea what the motive was at this point. We can confirm that the 43-year-old suspect had no affiliation to the university. He appears to have been something of a loner, disassociated perhaps from his community and and maybe even his family. And when he was found uh, dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, police said there was a note uh, where he had indicated potentially some other targets in New Jersey and in Colorado and uh, other places that authorities said weren't actual targets. But he portrayed himself as the leader of of a group or an army that was going to carry out attacks in different places. Police said that was pure fantasy, and they don't Mm. think there's any other threat here. But as a precaution, the authorities say in Ewing, New Jersey, ended up closing school because a couple of public schools were mentioned in this note. There was a threat uh, specifically to our public schools, and at that point it was about 6 o'clock in the morning, so we didn't have much time to waste. We had to put a plan in action to to make sure the safety of our students were taken into account. But he does appear to have come onto campus and maneuvered through a couple of different places before leaving after the shooting. He was tracked down in the city of Lansing about three and a half hours after the, the shooting had started. And in fact, police credited a tip that came in from campus once the suspect's image was posted all over for leading police to him. And back on campus... Students have been you know, gathering at a familiar meeting spot to, to mourn. Uh, many of them were quite shaken, uh, understandably, by what had gone on. They were told to shelter and, and shelter in place for several hours while police tried to resolve this. And so they're trying to find comfort in one another. And what's so scary, I guess, Aaron, is that there seems to be at this point like this terrible Venn diagram of shootings. Like some areas are marking shootings from years ago on the same day that other mass shootings and attacks are happening in different communities. But it ends up with all these communities just throughout the year just being marked by these different tragedies. And you're about to head up to Buffalo. We're like, we're about to revisit a different mass shooting. Mass shootings have become so frequent in this country, Brad. It's almost hard to believe that we're discussing one on the campus of Michigan State as we're remembering five years since the one on the high school campus in Florida, as we're about to hear the sentence for the the 19-year-old who carried out the racially motivated mass shooting in Buffalo at a supermarket that killed 10 black people. I mean, these are only chapters in what is becoming a very long book uh, about mass killing in modern America. Our client pled guilty to every count of the indictment with the full knowledge that he will spend the rest of his life in prison with no chance of parole. Later today in Buffalo, we'll learn the sentence for Peyton Gendron, who shot and killed 10 black people at the top supermarket in East Buffalo because he had some kind of a racial animus. And we know the sentence already. It's mandated by the charge of domestic terrorism motivated by hate that he pleaded guilty to. It's life in prison. 
But the drama of the day is going to come from the relatives of the victims who've been preparing victim impact statements. I just want him to have to think about what he did for the rest of his life. We spoke to one man, Wayne Jones, whose mother was killed. He said he's prepared to tell Peyton Gendron there are some mistakes you can never forget, and he wants Gendron to think about his mother as much as he does. Hey, and, and I'm wondering, when we think about the, the shooters here and the suspects here, like does this MSU case also give us a sense of what types of men, and they're almost all men, are committing these mass attacks? Not even just mass shootings, Aaron. Like you, You've been covering the case of a van attack that even there seems to share some similarities with the shooter in Michigan, even if they look completely different. It strikes me, Brad, that it's all about mental health in, in one way or another. In some cases, it appears these suspects were being treated and were off their medication, which is what police said happened in the U-Haul driver's instance in Brooklyn. In other cases, it's mental illness that doesn't appear to ever be diagnosed until someone takes a more deliberate step, like researching ISIS or looking online to to find common ground with with people who hate black people in the case of Peyton Gendron. And and for some others, there's never any rational explanation because these actions are not rational. And yet they are happening with increasing frequency. Already this year, there have been more mass shootings than there have been days of 2023. All right, Aaron Katursky, thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, she's running, and so is everyone else, it seems. We're back in a bit. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. 
Unofficially, there are several prominent Republicans vying for the presidential nomination next year. But leading into this week, on paper, there was only one. They said he's not doing rallies. He's not campaigning. Maybe he's lost that step. Uh, we didn't. I'm more angry now and I'm more committed now than I ever was. Because, But yesterday, another person emerged to say that she is running against former President Donald Trump. She's throwing her hat in the ring. And that person is Trump's own former pick for U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. So here we are, about a year out from the first primary elections, we got a race on our hands. ABC's political director Rick Klein joins us. Rick, we were talking about how early Trump announced how he'd be all by himself for a while. Well, we got another one here now. What do you make of Nikki Haley running against him? Yeah, it's been a quarter of a year, three months since Donald Trump announced, and he was alone among major candidates in the pool. And there's been a little bit of a, of a game of chicken going on between some of the other Republican uh, potential candidates. There's a first mover advantage that everyone knows. You get in, you get some name recognition, you get some travel to early states, you, you start to raise money. The flip side is being the only person in the pool against Donald Trump is a pretty uncomfortable place to be. Mm. He's going to start attacking. And that's what, uh, what what Nikki Haley opens herself up to. But I do think this, this does begin a new phase of the campaign. It's no longer longer than just I'm thinking about it or I'm testing the waters. Uh, we're going to hear later this morning from Nikki Haley directly in Charleston, South Carolina. This is why I'm taking on Donald Trump and trying to become the Republican nominee. Yeah. And what is her message or what is anyone's message going to be compared to Trump as they get into this? Well, there's a couple things that she offers. One is generationally. Uh, she's a full quarter of a century younger than Donald Trump. It's time for a new generation of leadership to rediscover fiscal responsibility secure our border and strengthen our country, our pride and our purpose. She's also an Indian American woman, a, the, the daughter of immigrants from from India. My mom would always say your job is not to focus on the differences, but the similarities. That's a first in Republican politics, a woman of color running for president in a, in a credible, serious uh, way. Also, the, the fact that she served under Trump, but isn't necessarily defined by Trump. She had a political career before that as governor of South Carolina. A lot of people thought she would run for national office at some point long before the Trump era. She's had a mixed record in and around Trump, at times being anti-Trump, at times being def- very deferential to Trump. In fact, I think she's switched positions almost every which way you could. But then again, so is most Republicans. The Republican right. Party has moved a lot. So maybe she gets a bit of a pass for that. I think the biggest thing is, look, electability. I think she can say, I've won before, and the kind of profile that I cut as a former governor and someone that served in national security foreign policy as well that checks a lot of boxes and it it moves across a lot of different voter types. Is that what you have to do, Rick? And and like there are too many potential candidates to count. I'll let you predict who might jump into the race. But central to everyone's campaign, does it have to be like hoping that there's a Trump fatigue out there? Well, I think it's impossible to consider your candidacy uh, as a Republican without defining yourself in some way around Trump. Do you believe that Donald Trump should ever be president again? David, I think that's up to the American people. But I think we'll have better choices in the future. People like Mike Pence, who was vice president, others like Mike Pompeo, who, uh, like Nikki Haley, served in the the Trump cabinet, even people like like Chris Christie. He is being his post-2020 election untethered self. Or Larry Hogan or Chris Sununu, they've defined themselves in some way, shape or form around how they've reacted to the Trump era. Liz Cheney certainly has. Any man who would watch television as police officers were being beaten Uh, as as his supporters were invading the capital of the United States, 
is clearly unfit for future office. So everyone's positioning around him. In a weird way, Trump may benefit from all of the other candidates. Uh, it's easier to see a Trump victory in primaries against 10 or 12 people than against two or three. So he may welcome as many comers as, as possible. Um, that said, it is a field that is dominated by not just Trump, but also Ron DeSantis. A lot of a lot of support right now flowing to the governor of Florida, given the conservative record that he has started to rack up. I think any, the others are going to be kind of arguing around the edges about what's the one, two, three percent of the that I can uh, secure for myself. Well, so that's the Republican side and kind of the, the huge group of names there. But can we talk about the other race that's emerging right now? Because for the last 30 years, one of California's Senate seats has been occupied by Dianne Feinstein. Yesterday, she finally announced that she would not be running for re-election. And I'm wondering, with such a big, important seat at stake, how messy could this get for Democrats now? Everyone seems to want this seat. Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, this is obviously Democrats to, to screw up in some ways. Look, Diane Feinstein is 89 years old. She'd be 91 at the next election. Not a big surprise that she's not running again. But even before that announcement, there were a, a huge range of Democrats jumping in. Uh, at least three sitting House members, um, Adam Schiff, who we remember from the impeachment pr- proceedings, Katie Porter, who's a leading progressive voice. But Mr. Diamond, she doesn't have the ability right now to spend your $31 million. Yeah, totally sympathetic. She's short 567. What would you suggest she do? I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Barbara Lee, who's a member of the Congressional Black Caucus and would be the only black woman right now in the United States Senate. We're going to win this. We're going to win this. And we're going to get these weapons of war off of the streets of America. They're just a couple of the people that may attract even more. And California's got kind of a quirky system where the top two candidates, regardless of party, advance to the the final round. And if you've got a lot of strong candidates, you can imagine some weird scenarios here where Democrats are eating into their own Mm -hmm. base against each other. There's going to be a lot of infighting, and it is an expensive, expensive uh, series of uh, of campaigns. This is the hardest state to campaign in because of all the media markets there are, and, and probably the hardest to predict, frankly. But um, it is going to be a long, drawn-out, and, and, and very bloody and expensive battle. All right, Rick Klein in D.C. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Brad. Yesterday, we heard from Ben Ratner, a resident of East Palestine, Ohio, who had just moved back into his home after the devastating train derailment earlier this month. I have family texting me, and they're like, I don't think you should be staying in town. I'm like, all right, I don't have any other options. And you could almost hear in his voice this uncertainty. Like, what are we supposed to do? On one hand, the air in town no longer smells. Authorities have said it's safe. And yet, if everything's all right, why are thousands of fish being found dead in local rivers? I know there's still questions uh, about what is going on in East Palestine. Yesterday, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine gave a news conference where one by one state authorities delivered remarks designed to put people at ease. Yeah, at this stage in the game, uh, we are recommending that uh, people in the community consider using bottled water. Welcome to the unnerving reality for residents who are told it's safe to move back in, just don't drink the water quite yet. And so for Ben and for anyone else who's wondering what to believe here, I want to bring in Andrew Welton from Purdue University. He's a professor of environmental and ecological engineering. Professor Welton, thanks for being with us. When I hear a presser like this, I hear lots of really scary sounding chemicals. But uh, what do you hear? Like, what is the current portrait you're getting from this site? Well, thanks, Brad, for inviting me to talk with you today. Yes, this uh, train derailment is a pretty significant disaster. And Residents have a right to be concerned. Uh, They were evacuated from the area uh, to protect their health. And a lot of big terminology is being thrown around with little context associated with it. 
So once the train derailment occurred, there was a there was an air release of contaminants into the air. And then there was the big mushroom cloud, that black cloud that went into the air. And that was a deliberately chemicals set on fire so that they would burn off a lot of the chemicals that wouldn't find their way into the, the community through, you know, along the streets and stuff. Data from February 10th, more recently, showed low levels of only two contaminants, butyl acrylate and ethyl hexyl acrylate. Both are volatile organic organic chemicals. But at the same time, if you look at the manifest about what else was in that tank, it was a whole bunch of different chemicals. So not this, not these just VOCs that have been talked about publicly. Many of the compounds that go on the list of volatile organic compounds, we can smell them at levels that are well below the levels that are considered unsafe. But there was oil, there was uh, plastic, polyethylene plastic and PVC, and some of that caught on fire in burn. So it was plastic burning. And a lot of that material has found its way to the ground and waterways. Well, yeah, let's talk about that because initially, right after this crash, there's a huge fire. Then, like, there's a huge, essentially a chemical fire where they're burning off chemicals. You'd think all the concerns are going to be in the air, and yet then that's when all the dead fish start showing up. What are the concerns with the water right now? Well, the dead fish or or the dead animals or or whatnot indicates potentially that there were contaminants that left the site and found their ways to these organisms. Very early on, um, you know, we we have estimated based on our sampling and modeling about 3,500 dead fish across that space, across those streams, tributaries, waterways, um, 12 different species. What needs to happen is some type of forensic investigation to figure out what these animals died of. And then where those contaminants are, are they still there? Are they in the sediment? Or did they move on downstream and dilute? We we have no indication that the municipal water supply uh, uh, is not safe. However, we do have testing that is pending. In East Palestine, there's two really sources of water. One is a public drinking water, which a central treatment plan treats the water and then sends it to buried pipes and into buildings. But then there's also private wells. And these private wells are, you know, one home is served by one well. And so if there's any uh, fallout where you have a soot or that black material that you saw in the air fall on top of the well and find its way into the well, then you can have contamination that way. If you were to live in the area, would you feel comfortable moving back into your home? Look, look I, I think that I would be drinking the bottled water um, and I would be continuing to... Uh, um, find out what the tests were showing as far as the air. Um, I would be alert and and concerned, but uh, I think I would probably be back in my house. As far as the air quality there, like uh, hundreds of homes have now been given, you know, air quality monitors and experts are saying like the air is safe. Like we're not seeing elevated risks for anything. Is it possible? I'm, I swear I'm not trying to be a jerk. This is an honest question. Like, is it possible for just like a week or two after a crash involving a chemical freighter that crashes downtown in the middle of everything, that air can just go back to normal in a place like this? Well, I think what's needed is they need to understand what happened. So when they burned off chemicals, that black smoke indicates that there was incomplete combustion. Mm -hmm. So they didn't actually burn everything off to carbon dioxide and water. There's particulate, there's, there's soot, there's other things that were there. And the question is whether or not did that, um, 
get diluted and blow away or did that kind of fall and concentrate on mm. the area around it? And then what risk does that pose to the, the community? Yeah, what kind of risks would be there if, if that stuff doesn't burn off properly? Well, probably the same type of risk that wildfires pose. So okay. with wildfires that we respond to, sometimes people's homes smell like smoke. Sometimes there's soot and ash uh, around their flower beds or their vegetable gardens. And there's specific things that you have to do when you encounter that type of material. You don't necessarily till it into your soil. Oh, that's you, interesting. I thought you were going to be like, so it's like a wild, because wildfire doesn't sound that bad. There are fires all the time. You're saying like, no, no, that, that could still really cause a threat. Oh, it can. And you'll see insurance companies, home insurance companies, sometimes go to these communities and they spend ten, fifteen thousand dollars in decontaminate the house because the soot and ash got inside the house uh, due to an open window or open doors and such. So they really need to understand what happened to the material, if it poses a risk. And the only way that you get there is through testing, rapid testing. Can we talk about long term as well? Like everything we've been looking at so far has been kind of like, hey, the air looks good. Today's readings look good. I'm wondering, though, and I got to imagine there's people in East Palestine wondering, like, are there long term risks with these types of chemicals that have been spilled? So a lot of what's happening right now, and we heard about it uh, yesterday at the press conference, was the contractors are digging up the soil, you know, five feet, seven feet below the ground, and they're taking that contaminated soil away. Separate soil samples have been collected within other areas of the vinyl chloride as part of characterization and preparation for waste disposal. And that's really important. So you got to get the source out of there. Because if you leave that there, what will happen is those concentrated chemicals will find their way further into the environment, you know, spreading out, maybe contaminating the groundwater. So it's really good that they're doing those types of like remediation actions. But from a long-term standpoint, you want to understand, you know, where the chemicals went and then which chemicals are, are going the farthest or staying concentrated. They're going to then uh, move to try to reduce the, be- the levels that still exist to background levels. And that may take months to years. All right. That is Professor Andrew Welton from Purdue. Thank you so much. Really helpful. Thank you. All right. One more quick break. When we come back, it's weird to negotiate at a round table. One last thing is next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And one last thing. They are the knights who say nay. No, not knee. Nay. All right, that's close enough. One of the more unique nights out you'll ever have is at medieval times. Part sporting event, part dinner theater, part 11th century cosplay. Stepping back in time and going to a noble medieval pageant just with Pepsi and air conditioning and, you know, modern stuff thrown in as well. At 10 different locations across North America, you can sit in an arena to watch a live jousting tournament while you're served hearty stews and chicken legs along with libations like local craft beer. Well, this weekend in California, the knights, squires, and even the queen that runs the show went on strike. It is ironic that we play 
nobility, queens, lords, ladies, and our audience doesn't realize how we go home in a broken car to an apartment with five other roommates. In recent years, as more and more workplaces organize, workers at some Medieval Times locations voted to unionize, first in Lyndhurst, New Jersey, and then last year, Buena Park, California. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. On Saturday, in between shows, several key performers in Buena Park walked off the job, claiming they're not paid adequately for what they do. After all, they say, jousting in the 21st century is a pretty specific skill set. And yet, some nights are only making $18.50 an hour. A manager at a nearby In-N-Out burger can make more than that, and they're not falling off a horse. A showcast manager, he, many years ago, had his leg shattered along the wall because his horse got scared. Primarily, we just want the company to recognize the inherent danger and then have us be compensated accordingly. Instead of canceling that night's shows, the company quickly cobbled together a cast from around the grounds. Employees say other cast members are now being quickly flown in from around the country. I was the green knight yesterday. I was the black and white knight yesterday. And I was scheduled to be your queen in the show today but we've all been replaced overnight by scabs from other castles. And that's one of the unique things about this strike. It's tough to find medieval scabs. These aren't just actors, they're athletes, they're falcon handlers, they're stable workers. When this group organized, Medieval Times management tried and failed to convince labor regulators that squires should be in a different category than actors. The Dallas-based company says it's committed to putting on all of its scheduled performances with both non-union and union talent that has stuck around and accused this union of walking out after only two meetings. The performers say they're not afraid to stay on strike. After all, when your average night involves swords flying at you, harsh bargaining tactics are but a scratch. I used to go to Medieval Times for birthday parties all the time as a kid. I'm telling you, Green Knight for life. I'll tell you that much. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Just a flesh wound. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.